0: Hello,
1: I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. Now, China's
2: parliament, the National People's Congress, has just approved a constitutional amendment to abolish presidential term limits. The reality is that Xi Jinping is now the head of the Communist Party, the head of the military, and now he could be president for life if he so chooses. That means that China is basically now under one-man rule. China's failing to learn the lesson of the Cultural Revolution, and the lesson of the Cultural Revolution was to have all power concentrated in one leader that's unaccountable to the people will inevitably lead to mass suffering and
0: abuses. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia research specialist at the University of Melbourne. In Ear to Asia, we talk with Asia researchers to look at the issues behind the news headlines in a region that is rapidly changing the world. On March 11, 2018, China's top lawmaking body, the 3,000-strong National People's Congress, voted almost unanimously to abolish the two-term limit for the office of the President of China. This cleared the way for current President Xi Jinping to potentially remain in office for life, should he wish. Term limits on China's presidency were instituted in the 1980s, after the decades-long tumultuous reign of Mao Zedong, from the inception of the People's Republic in 1949 until his death in 1976. Fast forward 40 years, and Xi Jinping may well lay claim to being the most powerful national leader since Mao, and in an era of unprecedented wealth and global influence for modern-day China. So is this move merely a consolidation of power by Mr Xi? Or is it about providing China with continuity and stability as it works to regain its historical glory and status as the nation at the centre of the universe? To shed light on Xi Jinping's possible motives and strategy and their implications for China, the Chinese people and the rest of the world, we're joined by Asia Institute China Watchers, political scientist Dr Feng Shou Wu and Dr Sao Tok. Welcome to both of you.
2: Thank you for inviting Thank you, Ali.
0: Feng Xia to you first. How
1: significant is this change? I think the implications could be as profound as, you know, changes the political structure overall, in a sense. I think uh, moving Chinese political structure from its traditional model to almost a presidential system with Chinese characteristics, you know, presidential plus the Communist Party. So you see it very much as a move towards strongman rule. Concentration of power in one political leader, yes.
0: So, Keith, what what's your thoughts? Because at the same time, the lack of any fixed term already and has always existed for the head of the military commission and the general secretary of the party, the other two very key roles. So arguably, does this change simply bring all these key roles into alignment?
2: Well, I see it as more of a symbolic change rather than something that is a very substantial one. Since the uh, 1980s, when Deng Xiaoping changed the system, What happened is that from Jiang Zemin onwards, you see a kind of holy trinity of roles appearing in the Chinese leadership, which is the number one person in China will concurrently take up three roles altogether, the chairman of the CMC, the secretary of the CCP, as well as the state presidency. So by removing the term of the state presidency, it's more like symbolically suggesting that when one person... Uh, stay on as the state president, he or she would be carrying on with the other two positions as well. That is how the kind of uh, institutionalisation that has been ongoing for, as you said, 40 years. And uh, in this case, it sends a very clear message to the rest of the party as well, to the nation, that things are changing.
0: Feng Shui, do you agree with that, that it's really a, a public recognition, if you like, a formal recognition of where Xi Jinping sees himself?
1: Certainly, I think the symbolic implications is there. Signals Xi Jinping's ambitions, Xi Jinping's determination to leave a strong mark in China's political history, sends symbolic signals to the world that he is going to continue all the mega projects he started, and he's going to be able to very effectively carry out, I think, because these are all the symbolic messages. But I do think there are sort of also uh, substantial consequences of this institutional change. If we look at the history of the position, the president of China... Since the middle 50s, since uh, uh, Liu Xiaoqi became the president while Mao was still the number one person of the party, sort of that was the beginning of this internal political pluralism within the CCP system. And then From middle 50s all the way to Jiang Zemin, actually, there's never been a time the same person who's the chairman of the CCP at the same time as the president. So even the most interesting case is Song Qingling at some point was the president of the republic. The position somehow always have been given to people either represents a particular segment of the political elites, who's actually not necessarily the leader of the CCP, or in 80s, a lot of times this position is given to a relatively speaking a younger person. So in a sense that this is also becoming a mechanism for the CCP regime to start cultivating or groom a next leader.
2: Can I ask you, do mm. you think this is a progressive change? Or is this something that is um, momentous?
1: progressive as you you see continuity yeah, you see it as a continuity i see, no no
2: i see it as a momentous it's a change it's it a is, shift yes i
1: would agree with you. it it is a shift it is a shift towards more concentration of power and uh, well, the official line is that enhance the coherence of the regime. To avoid in any future scenarios, there's internal pluralism or diversification or sharing of power. I think this is a major step to avoid any of that.
0: And that raises the question, I guess, of uh, how important that pluralism, that rotating leadership, if you like, has been to stability in China and uh, legitimacy as well, Sarkid. On the one
2: hand, I think by concentrating power, it allows Xi to really take his time and uh, make sure that his policies and his ideas were being seen through throughout his term, a longer tenure, i put it that way. However, you're seeing a decreasing in plurality within the party itself. I mean, since the last party congress, we can see how in the standing committee, Xi surrounded himself with all his loyalists, pretty much. And the kind of Plurality that we saw during Hu's time and during Jiang's time were totally gone, where, you know, there were different factions, there were different functional positions that were inside the uh, standing committee that counterbalanced against one person's voice. That was all gone. In the short run, I think it's good in a way that C's ideas can be manifested. You know, quite successfully within the policy. There's a kind of true train ideas, but his ideas can straight away go down the line as policy very quickly. However, in the long run, you're seeing the absence of a balance within the CCP. China, despite not being a democracy, has very robust competition within the party, and that seems to be eroding over time.
0: With this change to terms, With this, what you call a momentous change, was there any public opposition, any hint of it? I know it's very difficult to read it, but was there any suggestion? I mean, what makes people so prepared to embrace Xi Jinping?
2: I think first thing first, we have to acknowledge that Xi Jinping is immensely popular in China the kind of accolades that were given to him, the discussions on the website, on WeChat, the kind of blogs that were published. You can see how popular he is. Now, with a pinch of salt, however, is that how many of those who were opposing him were being censored off? We never know, and we will never know. But the thing here is that at least all the public information that we have shows that he is immensely popular. However, you see some disquiet. Within the party itself, only in private conversations, for example, where people express certain worry about where the party is heading, how the concentration of power would be. While they were not opposing Xi Jinping, there was certain, how, how would I put it, You know, some nagging feeling that things might or might not be right. Without trying to read too much into the tea leaves, I think not everyone would support Xi Jinping as the paramount leader in perpetuity, put it that way. People who are more exposed to democratic ideals, people who are more exposed to liberal ideas they will tend to see it as China is moving backwards. However, there are also loyalists within the party who embrace the whole thing, you know. The party has been under a lot of pressure in trying to reconnect itself with the society, with the polity. And that has been a project that has been ongoing for about 20 years. And with the demise of communism, with the success of the market economy, there's a real soul-searching within the party as how to sustain the party into the next 50 or 100 years. And that is something that party loyalists would gladly embrace.
0: Feng Xia says not to read the tea leaves too deeply. But of course, we don't have much choice but to read the tea leaves because we don't really have other clear indications. So you've done a lot of study into this area. What's your uh, sense of the interaction between the public and the leader and the extent to which this outwardly very strong support for Xi Jinping is actually reflected through all layers of society?
1: I think this is one of the toughest topics in China research. We wish we can do public polling in China, uh, give us some data to speak of, but that's just not possible. Right after the People's Congress made decisions, decision, there's a WeChat-based uh, Survey, but it only lasted maybe for a couple of hours, and they have very limited data. But for that small sort of online-based survey, we have majority of people go against the abolition of the term limit. Mm -hmm. But of course, that's why the survey is terminated within a couple of hours. I think with new media, social media, independent media, and also no matter what the market has really created private space or pushed. A social space, in a sense, even though that space is, you know, reducing the last five years. But there are some space and in those space, I think people are freer to express their real feelings. But then, of course, you go to the mainstream, I think there's now very, very difficult to find uh, any kind of criticism.
0: How significant is Xi Jinping's thought? It's now enshrined in the constitution. Is that symbolic, only Sao Keet, or does it go further than that?
2: I think it goes further than that. Never before, I think, except for Mao himself, that a body of thought is being enshrined within the party constitution when the leader is alive or when the leader was in power. If you see how Deng Xiaoping and Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, their ideas were only moved into the constitution after they stepped down as uh, the paramount leaders. So now Xi Jinping is probably... Yeah, kind of like positioning himself as equal to what Mao was doing when Mao was alive. And that brings back to the personality cult thing. I thought that personality cult has been becoming more and more pronounced as we go along. I mean, a lot of the kind of language that he used, you know, like, you know, roll up the sleeves to get things done and all those are ideas or slogans that happen during Mao's time. You know, you would expect slogans like that during the Great Leap Forward, for example. And I don't see that as a positive thing because that creates a kind of personality count. Eventually, what happened is that the bureaucracy, the uh, officialdom will be all looking at all these slogans rather than doing real
0: work do you function, do you see the same risks there if you like and the same significance of the enshrining of xi jinping thought
1: yes very similarly i just want to add to it sort of reinforcing this chinese political collective psychology is as if this is the only way to mobilize Chinese society. To get things done, you have to invent slogans, you have to create these public models, you have to, you know, recreate this ethos of madness. That's something I have been concerned as a researcher. I think this goes back to a lot of scholarship to restudy cultural evolution, but in a sense, the practical call is that the nation has still been missing a collective reflection on the collective madness of that 10 years. But Xi Jinping
0: was a young boy during the Cultural Revolution, but he experienced it and he would remember it. So what part of the danger of the cult of personality Does he not get? Even the official ruling on Mao was not, I mean, was it 70% good, 30% bad? But that's a fairly significant ruling for the party to say about their founder. So one wouldn't be there to put themselves up as a Mao, I would have thought.
1: Ali, you're so right. This is such a puzzle for someone who was forced to leave his family at the age of 16, whose father, parents were, you know, literally politically repressed, um, who had a very bitter one year to the degree he actually ran away from the village he was stationed. He ran back to Beijing, but he met some friends, talked him out of it. He returned. But I think he also is a son of a true communist. Well, one of the first things when he was sort of internally nominated as the successor, he went to Shenzhen to his dad's tomb. And in a sense, I think he has this very strong traditional Chinese filial piety that um, there is this element that <laughs> he is so committed to the traditional Chinese communist ways of ruling probably goes to the earlier history of the Chinese Communist Party, goes all the way back to Jinggangshan, to Yan, these period where it's always about mass mobilization. But in a sense, what I see is this complete revival of the... Mass mobilization, political, culture in China, which, in a way, in a sense, you know, modernization calls for change. Is that you, you institutionalize things, right? You institutional political actions. You institutionalize political change, policy making. You institutionalize everything. Everybody turns from a traditional man to a modern man. That you exercise your rights. But I think, again, you know, when I say Xi Jinping's team, I do have a couple of people in my mind that these are trained, experienced political scientists. They have very different political philosophy and they have probably rejected this progressive sort of view of political modernity. You're
0: listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm your host, Ali Moore, and I'm joined by political scientists Dr Feng Shou Wu and doctor Saki Tok. On March 18, 2018, China's top lawmaking body, the National People's Congress, removed the two-term limit on the office of China's president, allowing current President Xi Jinping to potentially rule for life. We're discussing the implications that a paramount leader with a life tenure, would have on China, the Chinese people and the world. Let's have a look at motives here, because I guess, before I look at motives, I should ask, Feng Shui,
1: do you think Xi Jinping intends to rule for life? He intends to rule for a long time, but I'm not going to predict that he really sees himself rule all the way until... Um, last breath.
0: <laughs> but, but that brings me to my question of why did he see the need for a change? He is in a system where there are no obvious rivals. And before this change, he had a number of years. He wasn't due to stand down till 2023. Many politicians in the West would think that that was just an extraordinary amount of time. So why the need and why the need now, do you think?
1: This is really, I think, due to his leadership star, personality, his ambition. He's certainly a very ambitious leader. He's very different, drastically different from his predecessor. His scope of goals to achieve is way broader. And uh, he wants himself to be remembered as one of the greatest leaders in Chinese, if not world history, but he has big goals. So there's now,
0: I suppose, two ways you can look at this, Salkeet. On the one hand, he is now in a position where because he has time and because he is with unfettered leadership power, he can pursue his policies, very ambitious policies like One Belt, One Road, for example. The flip side is that if all does not go according to plan, there is no one else to blame.
2: That's absolutely right. I think that is the risk that they have to take in this sense. It's not just the one belt, one road. I think previously we talked about one belt, one road in another podcast here. And, you know, you asked the question if it's too big to fail. You know, in, in in a way, it is probably too big to fail. And with Xi at the helm for a long time, it's going to be something that China is going to devote all his effort into and everything. Now, the danger here is not just one belt, one road, but actually what I've seen is on Taiwan. Now, you see um, previous leadership were... Pretty reluctant to take on Taiwan because they know that they only have 10 years and no sane leadership will want to just pick up a Taiwan issue or a Japan issue and just decided to run it. Because it's not to their, their advantage. They couldn't solve those issues within ten years. They knew that they can't. So they just delay it for the longest time as they can. But for Xi Jinping, he seems to be taking all this up right now. And that is the danger. Because once China got into all those qubmiers, sand traps they could never extract themselves up from it. And things could just kind of like roll on and become worse and worse. In terms of foreign policy, that is my worry.
0: Uh, Feng Shui, I think you actually, you agree on this, don't you? That, very that, much so. Because yes. traditionally, it's always been non-interference in the affairs of others. Perhaps that will change.
1: I first very much agree with Soki's concerns. Longer terms now seems to give these hopes, but these hopes are dangerous. You know, if once you start it, You might think you can accomplish it, but you step into a muddy zone and uh, you can't get yourself out on time. Then you try other means to extend your rule. So there is now going to be extra incentive to extend your rule. Maybe at this point... The Xi team probably think, well, let's just say 15 years. But because there's so much mess, they potentially will leave. Um, Then they say, well, if we don't fix this, how can we leave that? So then the term goes on and on. This is a little bit like the Putin syndrome. You know, if Putin had left the position at the time of 2008, when he already fixed a lot of problems with the post-Soviet Russian system. He probably would be remembered as one of the best, you know, leaders in the post-Cold War era. But then he came back, he had ambitions, he wanted to fix more problems, but then he realized he got himself into lots, lots of traps. Now he just couldn't leave. Right? So, and also, these leaders, you know, if we give them the benefit of the doubt, that they do think about the big picture, they do think about what happens if I leave, then they do see, okay, now there's going to be a big vacuum of power, and they couldn't find, you know, an equivalent she, right, then you're sort of also obliged to stay as long as possible to find a second she. But that actually raises another
0: question. Is there any room now within the current, the way the system is currently structured for a successor or perhaps more importantly, a rival, to come forward? Is that now going to be incredibly difficult, even if she proves not to be a, a deft hand at you know, all the challenges?
1: Social scientists would say yes. <laughs> but uh, again, history is all going to be filled with accidents and unexpected people and things.
2: You know, so Mao had uh, Liu Shaoqi for 20 years and decided that he's not the right person and removed him and replaced him with Lin Biao and... Afterwards, Lin Piao was found to, to have plotted against uh, Mao and then, you know, and he was left without any successor. Now, the successor thing, I think eventually Xi will find a successor, but most likely it will not be a competitor. All right. And so, nor will it be soon. Yeah. Nor will it be anytime soon. I mean, the last five years of the anti-corruption campaign, one thing we saw is that you see the removal of almost one generation of future leaders out from the uh, political bureau. And, you know, the only one left standing is probably uh, Ho chung And that is a worrying sign because the strong signal is that all naysayers will be removed. Simple enough, okay? Anyone that is able to secede Xi Jinping will be removed. It also
0: goes back to your point earlier that there's no one there left to question or challenge. or
2: No checks and balances, absolutely. So short term wise, it allows the bureaucracy and the state to mobilise all the resources to materialise. Xi Jinping's ideas. But to what ends, I think there's a big question mark out there. And uh, whether someone can change the course is another big question mark out there.
0: Feng do you think there are more risks than potential rewards with this change? Is that the bottom line?
1: My opinion is, maybe I see the darker side of the whole story, and I don't see economic growth as the most important achievements loss of trust in any sort of institutional sustainability in the Chinese system. That's a huge loss. I mean, we can't put a price tag on it, but it's a huge loss. It changes collective psychology, changes contemporary political culture in in Chinese society. Do you think we're at that point? I think we've passed almost. I think this younger generation grown up with this uh, setting already and take these kind of tendency as normality, takes man leadership as the normality of the Chinese system. Right, This is how they grown up with. To turn it around will take a lot of effort, um, especially under this trend when the system becoming tighter, uh, narratives become much more concentrated, there's not much of a sort of a diversification of narratives. Then to turn that back, Around, I think it's very, very challenging.
0: And it requires a a broad political consciousness, really, on behalf of people.
1: Yes, exactly. And it's going to be very, very difficult to organise things, to run autonomous activities, the growth of bottom-up social consciousness... All going to um, face a lot of challenges, and I just want to add, as China rises, as China becomes the banner bearer of new liberal economic world system. Now China is at the forefront of, you know, free trade and all these. China now being sometimes praised in international media, you know, in a sense that finally people are looking at the Chinese economic model. You know, that's fine. But it's also difficult now for external actors to be able to influence domestic policy making, to be able to offer a bit of support to domestic dissent voice. Right? It's, it's also very, very difficult now for transnational advocacy to take place. Sakit, you you've said in another place that you used to be able to see
0: Chinese politics. Now you can't.
2: Well, I put it this way. I usually joke with my friends that previously the transition, leadership transition, the decision making is all has been all institutionalized from Jiang Zemin's time. And during Hu Jintao's time, we can even predict who is probably going exactly. to take over. But now with Xi in place, everything is up in the air really, you know. If you were to ask me who is going to take over Xi, I'll probably stare at you right in the face and I don't know. What is he going to come up with? I don't know either. You know, that kind of thing. So he may come up with some blue sky thinking and say, oh, we're going to run this project and whatever things out of the blue. And that is probably going to be the new norm in Chinese politics.
0: And what an interesting confluence that at the same time, as you pointed out, Feng Shui, that you do have China playing this particular role on the world stage at a time when the US is having its own difficulties, that you also have internal China changing so dramatically as well. It's going to be fascinating to watch. I think that we could probably have a podcast on this particular topic once a month for as long as Xi Jinping remains in power. We can revisit this topic. <laughs>
2: yes, definitely.
0: Indeed. Yes. Uh, Dr. Feng Shui Wu and Dr. Saki Tok, many thanks for talking to Ear to Asia.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Book. It's
0: a pleasure. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher or SoundCloud. And it would mean a lot to us if you'd give us a generous rating in iTunes or like us on SoundCloud. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons copyright 2018, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.